0: Are there essential elements to writing historical thrillers? Could you
1: you list them up? There there are. Uh, Again, it comes in threes. I would say it's walking the ground, it's breaking the history open, and it's creating the intrigue and the tension. And of those three, I would say walking the ground is the most important, and it's certainly the most important to me.
0: Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History, My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Hello Jamie. Hi Tom. Today we're going to take a small step sideways. Instead of talking about those bloody violent moments in history we so love, we're going to discuss how to write a historical thriller. This is something that you, James, as a best-selling author, have done many times. Yeah, too many times, maybe. Well, this podcast is an introductory masterclass explaining how to write a thriller. For those who like to read thrillers, this is a behind-the-scenes tour. And for those aspiring to write, this is a lesson in technique and tricks of the trade. But first, I think it would be useful to know a bit about your background, Jamie. From your mother's side, there are some interesting surnames, such as Danger and Bond. Do you think you became a thriller writer because of some ingrained nature? Was it in your genes? Or was it nurtured in you by your family and from your schooling days?
1: I I think it was probably a mixture of everything. And uh, I loved the, the chronology of history. I loved the kings and queens particularly the kings who kicked French butt, like uh, Henry V and Edward III. So that was very much part of the beginning. And there was quite a lot of travel. Uh, Back in the 60s, as a child, I'd go to Malta quite a lot, and everyone was snorkeling, and I was crawling through abandoned pillboxes and looking at rusted barbed wire from the Second World War. And it's also where I first heard about the Great Siege of Malta of 1565, the Knights of St. John holding out against the Ottoman Turks. And it obviously fascinated me because 30 years later, I turned it into Blood Rock, a thriller about it.
0: It's a brilliant place, Malta. I spent quite a lot of time there um, 10 years ago. And um, all sorts of extraordinary things like uh, this thing called the Weedar. Did you come across that? Which is basically a giant sort of curved concrete wall. And they just put a microphone in the middle of it, and it was a sort of early radar warning system before they had the sort of proper radar.
1: Well, they had them over here, all over the place, yeah. And, and Malta, of course, at the beginning of the war, only had three Gloucester Gladiator fighters to, to defend it, and uh, they were known as Faith, Hope, and Charity.
0: And yeah, I think they've still got one, haven't they, somewhere in the
1: museum. There. Yes, I think, I think they, I... Might, they may well do, actually, yeah.
0: Didn't you also climb the great pyramid of
1: Cheops? I did, or Khufu, as people call it. But uh, yes, on the plain of Giza, when I was sixteen, I, I, I seem to remember bribing a guard. <laughs> Probably the wrong thing to do. Oh, were well, uh, you not
0: allowed to climb it? No,
1: no, absolutely not. And uh, just as I was about to head up, the uh, someone shouted after me. You do realise if you if you fall, you'll only bounce once. Uh, and it was steep. It took about three hours. It takes it, that long to climb? Oh yeah, and each of the each of the blocks is the size of a packing kit, it comes up to your chest. Yes. So it was a bit, it was incredible to sit on the, it, it felt like the roof of the world to sit on the top and watch the dawn come up across the desert. And that certainly got me into the zone of, of history, seeing the sweep of history but without he, being too pretentious about it.
0: Then there was Russia.
1: Oh yes, about the same time I went to Russia, middle of the Cold War, and uh, there's a photo of me flipping the bird, gi- giving the finger to the statue of Felix Dzerzhinsky, the founder of the Cheka, the secret police, notorious founder of the secret police, in front of the KGB headquarters in Dzerzhinsky Square. And uh, I felt I was doing my bit uh, in the middle of the Cold War. And with my twin brother, we managed to take our room to pieces looking for bugs. So I, I, again, I felt I was investigating the, the darker side of, of the Soviet Union, even, even back then.
0: Some journalist took his
1: room apart. Apparently, there was a
0: large brass plaque under the carpet on the floor with four big bolts, and he thought, this must be a very... Ancient form of listening device, and under it, the, and the chandelier came down in the dining room under the <laughs> under his bedroom. Well, well,
1: we did cause a lot of damage, so I'm I'm not going back there any soon. But again, later on, that turned into uh, you know part of Cold Cut, my techno thriller about the head of the KGB taking over Russia as president and returning it to its Stalinist past. So, yeah, right. so, 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 what I'm saying to any a potential writer out there is is no experience is wasted it it all feeds into the mix
0: we were both at school in the 70s and early 80s and there wasn't a lot to do in in those places
1: no but there were there were a lot of things that basically revolved around defence and the military and uh, back in the early 1970 it was basically uh, making airfix models reading Commando War magazines and war magazine. pl- yeah, and playing top trumps, you know the best tanks, the best combat aircraft, the best warships. I still remember those images, so it it definitely fed in to to what I would end up doing later on,
0: yeah, my headmaster, Major Pike, whose father was also the headmaster, Major Pike from the First world war, um, he was Major Pike from the Second World War, and his idea of of educating us was to play us the records of Winston Churchill's speeches, which he had the complete set. And If we caught him after lunch and he was teaching history, he'd be there at the front of the class telling us about Hannibal and uh, smoking his cigar and having a glass of brandy (laughs) while we stared out the window. And then, of
1: course, what about family? Well, like you, Tom, they were basically war generation. In fact, the people surrounding us back then were war generation, either from the Great War or from the Second World War. Or, and, both. or both. I mean, you had Bomber Harris and Douglas Bader uh, around me at the time and the family. There were people like Sir Hugh Dowding, who had commanded fighter command uh, in the Second World War. There was Frank Phillips, the boozy old news reader from that period, Tinny Dean, who had taught Douglas Bader to play golf, who had lost his own leg in in North Africa. So there were all these characters around. I even knew someone called Harold Malkin, who saw the Red Baron being shot down in the Great War. Uh, and, And when it came to family, my father, who was an industrialist and great white hunter, he had shot with the likes of Hemingway, with Herman Goering, and legend has it he got Herman Goering pissed a few times and pinched a lot of Nazi secrets. Uh, My stepfather had been a young surgeon during the Blitz in the East End. That was his first job when he came down from Cambridge, joined the Paris, parachuted into Normandy, uh, didn't go on Operation Market Garden into Arnhem because he broke his leg. Uh, My mother had been a child in the war and uh, had lost two beloved uncles. So the war was very much around. And so you couldn't really escape. History yes. or defence?
0: Yes, my, my uncle is rather the same. He he was um, you know very well educated, spoke um, German and French and so on, and so he ended up being drafted into um, the SAS. Which I mean, you, he was tough, but he didn't look like it. He was quite sort of fey, I think you'd say. But he, he liked the colour of the pink beret, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and he did, you know. So they eventually dropped him into in, behind enemy lines, where he sort of swam around in France. But, I mean, extremely brave. And and then he ended up being um, a part of the monuments team, you know, because he actually did know something about arts. He went around rescuing works of art that the Nazis had squirreled away.
1: And it was always done by sleight of hand without too much effort or perceived effort.
0: Absolutely. There was no bragging about how tough things were. There was one moment where he was sent off to somewhere in Wales, to, to, and he said, extraordinary, to be shown how to pick locks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's a picture of an SAS guy in North Africa in full ball dress, uh, <laughs> standing on the bonnet <laughs> of a Willis Jeep. So uh, it, it, it took all sorts. It,
0: yeah, so we were inspired, so now we need to kick on a bit.
1: Yes, well, well the defence... By the time I was a teenager, the defence and the military side were, were taking hold. I mean, my 16th birthday present was Jane's fighting ship, so, uh, with, uh, with every warship and support vessel in every navy in the world. And I think I read it and learned it from cover to cover. So, so something was kicking in. And I ended up as a post grad at the Department of War Studies, specialising in terrorism and future trends in international terrorism. Everyone else at the time was into arms control, which to me was bean counting. To, uh, what I wanted to do was find out about guerrilla organisations, why civil wars occurred, and why international terrorism flourished. So that, that again, it wasn't wasted, and, and it fed into my first uh, techno-thriller later on.
0: So how did you make the leap from defence political risk consultant to writing techno-thrillers?
1: Well, I had been a city defence and aerospace analyst. I was also writing for August journals occasionally, like Jane's Defence Weekly and Jane's Intelligence Review. I moved more into political risk consultancy, so the effects of the Iran-Iraq war on business or the Angola Civil War. For example, if country A wanted to sell country B turboprop training aircraft, I'd do a study on the chances of country B Hanging machine guns and rockets on it, uh, which country A didn't want to to country B to do. So, so it, it it was that sort of thing, and I liked the complexity, and I liked the various political and security and defense um, implications of it. So,
0: and come on, be honest, you like the gadgets too.
1: I love the gadgets, and uh, it was it was fun, and it was it was cutting across all these different areas that was interesting, and 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 in a way, that's what techno thrillers uh, did, and. People ask me, what is a technological? Well, I'd say anything that's set against a big uh, strategic political backdrop and anything that involves a lot of gadgetry, military technology, espionage, special forces, that sort of thing. And when I started, it what I wanted to do was write warnings. So the first one, uh, Deadheaders, was about the threat posed by mass terrorism and the need to deadhead it. The second one, Cold Cut, was about... Uh, the, the head of the KGB, as I said, taking over Russia. The third one was about. Uh, it was an eco-chiller, really, about uh, a man who thinks the climate is screwed. The day of judgment is coming. So he tries to bring forward the day of judgment by doing terrorist atrocities around the world. And again, and the
0: time of this is a, is about sort of just before the turn of the century, just before the millennium.
1: Yeah. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. And and. I love the research. I mean, for Colcutt, I was sitting in the boardroom of the International Monetary Fund discussing with experts how to destroy the Russian economy when, damn it, the Russian economy suddenly collapsed four months later.
0: Destroyed itself. Um,
1: Yes, and I was at the Hadley Centre talking to the Met Office's uh, climate modelers about what was happening to climate change. So eat your heart out, Greta. I was there 20 years before you.
0: (laughs) So what you're saying to me is anything you do any experience you have it can all feed
1: into what you end up writing it's all useful it's all useful no, nothing is wasted although i did eventually make the leap to historical thrillers because i ended up uh, sitting in front of a sort of banner saying apocalypse has just been brought forward signing books and no one was coming to to have their book signed because of course it was the day after 911 what did you
0: carry over from techno thrillers to writing historical thrillers?
1: A belief that I wouldn't go back to techno thrillers. (laughs) I think I'd said everything I wanted to say about terrorism, but what I did want to take over, carry across to techno thrillers, were firstly the big themes, that of course the techno thrillers were warnings, whereas the historical thrillers were basically the big moments, the Spanish Armada, the gunpowder plot, the last stand of the Crusaders, Uh, Nazi nuclear development, those sorts of things. So I wanted the big themes. I also wanted to carry over the spectaculars, what in publishing idiom is known as the set pieces. Uh, Those are the cliffhangers, the big moments, the explosions. And in a way, that's what you populate any thriller with. You you, you need to, to waypoint it with these with these big moments to, to, to keep the pace going, and this is the trouble with a lot of um, thrillers or novels is that there is a problem with pace, and it's very difficult to to sustain pace. And you you often spot it in books that lose it. So you have to keep the pace going, and the, and the set piece is a way of doing it. The third thing I think I carried over from techno thrillers was the gadgets, the gizmos, and I. Yeah and of course with techno thrillers it's easy because the technology is always there the technology is developing and you 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 try and search for the latest thing uh, the latest coolest and the coolest ga- gadget and but that
0: doesn't uh, last uh, you know your novel on the shelf 10 years later is probably very dated because in fact the things you're predicting with technology and how it's going to be don't happen and then something insignificant actually becomes the mobile phone which everybody uses or whatever. Um, Whereas whereas I'd say from you know gadgets from the past were of their moment amazing. But you know, looking back on them, they're either fixed in time or disappeared.
1: Well in the same way that politics and international events catch up with you. So at least with history, it's already in the past, so it's never going to be dated. (laughs) It's got a longer shelf life in a funny sort of way. And and so When I was writing the historical thrillers uh, and placed in them this intelligence, that this intelligence agent, Christian Hardy, who appeared in Realm, in Treason, in Cradle, I wanted to kit him out with the latest stuff. So I gave him a brigantine jacket, an armoured plated jacket. I gave him a Katzbalger short stabbing sword that he could use to, to kill people in alleyways. I discovered a dagger that could split into three. Uh, to block, to parry rapier thrusts from an opponent, and in fact, there's one in the Wallace collection. So you do get loads of, or spring-loaded uh, stiletto blades, for example. I mean, all all these things existed, or or lock pistols that were double or triple-barreled. James Bond of his day. Well, that's what you're. That's what you're trying to create.
0: So. Um techno-thrillers,
1: historical thrillers. What is the difference between the two? I think the principal difference is that techno-thrillers tend to be plot-driven, whereas historical thrillers tend to be character-led. And by that I mean, if you look at a techno-thriller, quite a lot of techno-thriller writers will produce a 50-page synopsis, and the eventual novel is simply an expansion of that. They're filling in the gaps, putting in the technology, but they're very, very densely plotted and the characters are less important. And what drives it along is the plot, it's not the characters. When it comes to a historical thriller, your plot is essentially written for you. The structure, the framework is there because all you're doing is feeding, threading the story, the narrative through that structure. you you can't go against what happened in history. So you've got to go with the flow. And what you're doing is creating the character, dropping them in it, and seeing if they come out the other side. And I wrote a historical thriller called Pilgrim about the Children's Crusade of 1212, when 70,000 kids left Europe to try and reach the Holy Land and bring back the true cross on which Christ was purportedly crucified. And they vanished into history. So what I did, I took a whole bunch of children from a village in the Rhineland dropped them into hell and saw them out on the other side. Some of them got through, some of them didn't. But you sit there with your head in your hands, occasionally going, Oh, what have I done to them? <laughs> Even as
0: the author, you feel oh, it's, cruel, it, do you?
1: You're playing God with them. It, 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 you live with these characters, and the way I write, you know, because I'm blind, I suppose it's, it's in my head. It's like a film spooling through my head, and I'm, I'm sort of watching where they lead me.
0: Well, what about the actual technique what our listeners have tuned into? It's probably time now to start revealing some of those secrets, how you write historical thrillers. Like any thriller, I assume the beginning, middle and end is
1: important. You'd think so, but it's amazing how many books don't have a hook at the beginning to grab the reader. Uh, they fall flat in the middle and they fizzle out at the end. It's it's amazing how many books you get to the end of and you go, Oh. <laughs> and it's a complete anticlimax. And I think it's important that when you start, you you, you know where you're going, particularly with a historical thriller, where, as I said, you're following the characters. And you don't want to go off you don't you don't want them to go off at a tangent um, and distract you. you you want to know the route they're heading as a writer, and having that middle and that end is, is is a good target to aim for yeah, so for your beginning, what's the key thing? Oh I think having something dramatic, something that creates the mood music, maybe introduces uh, the key character. I always start with a beginning section, and then start with the first chapter. So the beginning section tends to be an action sequence, like like a Bond film. Yeah. Uh, and, so you hook uh, them in. You hook them in. You get the bigger picture. And so what we're going to do now is have uh, a series of beginnings from my books, a series of starts, uh, to give an idea of, of where the things begin and just some ideas, some pointers to... to any potential writer, on what they might be able to do.
0: For our first example, this is the opening scene from James Jackson's Crusader novel, Pilgrim.
2: 4th of July, 1187. The Holy Land. They should have known it would end this way. Might have guessed when the old Arab crone had cursed them as they departed camp, and the fire they set beneath her failed to catch. It seemed a long time ago, before weary miles of parched earth and dust-clogged throats, of constant skirmish and faltering advance, of gradual decline and encroaching death. This was the bloody conclusion. A final stand on a sloping and godforsaken plain they called the Horns of Hattin, the end of Christendom, of Jerusalem, of everything for which they had fought.
0: Our second example of an opening scene is taken from Jamie's novel Realm, set in the time of the Spanish Armada.
2: Wednesday, the 8th of February, 1587. Martyrdom had its own rituals and rhythm. She had asked for more time, another day or two in which to pray and prepare and make her peace. But the stone-faced nobles of Elizabeth had sneered the more, had reminded her, they were present merely to announce her execution for the following morn. That morn was come.
0: Okay, and then the middle, what's going on in the middle?
1: The, the middle tends to be a, a turning point, it, You know, a bit like a three-act play. It's, 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 it's the middle act, it's where things change. Um, again, taking Pilgrim, the Children's Crusade, the first half was them going through Europe um, the second half, it begins with them landing in the Holy Land. If I take a thriller such as Realm, which is about the Spanish Armada, the first half was the espionage that went on in Lisbon to prevent it happening, the Armada sails, and then by the middle of the book, that's the end of the Armada section, and the second half of the book is about Realm Reno, as he's called, the hispanulated uh, Englishman, the, the agent sent by Spain to assassinate Elizabeth I. So it follows his uh, journey into London and, and the attempts to stop him.
0: OK, so so what you want to avoid with your middle is no sagging. You don't want to lose your reader and they toss your book in the, in, in the pile of half-read books.
1: Well, that's the sign of a bad thriller if they do that. So no, you, you've got to keep it going. So the pace and the structure is is important. And then uh, the ending. Then the finale. It's always good to have a, a dramatic ending. And it's always good to have some some twists, some unexpected turns at the end. And that's what you're trying to do. You're, you're trying to bring the threads together, uh, particularly if you have, uh, say, the kids wandering through the Holy Land. You, you have to bring all those different threads. And if it's a complex plot, y- you've got to make it, you've got to make it work. You've got to, have people coming away going, so that's what happened. That's how they did it. Um you know and 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 you've got this overarching surface tension provided by the big theme. I always think the big theme is is what it, it's like the Millennium Dome or the you know the O2 Center. It, it it's the overarching canopy and it's the what's going on to the little people down there that, that makes the thing move along
0: yes and of course that was a very good example of how not to write a, a thriller because underneath the overarching millennium dome there was nothing of interest well or uh, substance
1: well there was no nothing of interest and substance because there was no history there of course if they had the contents of the vna or the british museum people would have flocked yeah. but no one wants to see a hermaphrodite statue and a spirit zone
0: okay so in in getting into some detail then are there essential elements to writing historical thrillers? Could you, you know, list them up?
1: There, there are. Uh, again, it comes in threes. I would say it's walking the ground, it's breaking the history open, and it's creating the intrigue and the tension. And of those three, I would say walking the ground is the most important, and it's certainly the most important to me uh, for, for many reasons. One is you have to absorb the locations through your bones. But if you if you feel it in your bones, then you're going to be able to express it more vividly on the page. It sounds to me a bit strange
0: given that you're blind. How can you, you know, experience walking the ground?
1: Well, you you feel it through your toes and your fingers. I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, going down the hospital sewage system in Acre, in Israel, today's Israel, uh, where the Crusaders had their last stand in 1291, you got a very real sense of people fleeing through those sewage systems. And you looked up, I could still see a pinpricks of light. I said to the chief archaeologist, what are those? He said, those are the public latrines. And I suddenly had an image of heads falling down, people being beheaded over them, and the heads falling down. So that became a scene. I was feeling the pillars in the Hospitaller. And I suddenly had a a vision of feeling a name engraved on that, and that became the start to perdition. Finding the name Benedict, and that created the main character for the for the for the thriller. I mean, it can go horribly wrong uh, with feeling stone. I mean, I was in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem and uh, feeling these crosses that have been scored into the walls by pilgrims and crusaders over the last fifteen hundred years and uh, part of the wall came away on my hands, and I said to these friends of mine, I appear to have turned the cross into a nought. Shall we leave? Is that the <laughs> moment
0: where they, you find they've already run off and left you?
1: <laughs> that has happened too. But some of these places can get quite emotional, uh, and, and, and they are very moving, and there's a lot invested in them. You know, if, whether you're walking through Gethsemane or sitting on a rock on the top of Masada, and knowing that that boulder that you're sitting on was actually being prepared by the Jewish zealots to roll down on the Roman legions who were building ramp up to them. And those, those are still there. So you, you definitely feel the history. Uh, closer in time, I was writing a book called Endkampf, which means final struggle, basically, in English. And it was about an attempt to uh, destroy the Nazi high command. So much closer in, in, in dates uh, than some of the other books I've been doing. I was up on the Obersalzburg Mountain, just in front of the Berkhof Villa, the ruins of the Berkhof Villa that Hitler used to stay in. And uh, I found the, all well, these friends of mine, found the path down which Hitler walked every morning. And of course, Hitler only walked downhill because he suffered from the vertigo and was then picked up by a car. We walked down for 20 minutes, which is exactly how long Hitler used to walk for, and found the ruins of his tea house. And in front of it was the Muslanikov, this 10 yards wide piece of green space, this, this clearing. And I stood in the middle of it, and I felt the air come out of my lungs. I, it felt like being in the bullseye of history. I have never felt in such a spiritless, dead zone in my entire life I knew that that's where he was standing when he heard that the Normandy invasion had started. I knew that that's where he had stood when he formulated plans to invade Poland and started a war that ended up killing 50 million people. And it was only some years later that I read an account by Klaus von Stauffenberg, the famous briefcase bomb plotter against Hitler, who had earlier tried to assassinate Hitler with a pistol and turned up on the Obersalzberg mountain and, and couldn't take a shot because there were too many bodyguards. And he talked about the mountain being spiritless, of being completely dead. And I, I really felt that. I, I, I Not even having had it suggested to me by Stauffenberg, you felt this pervasive evil. Yes. And... Again, uh, you know, in another place, Nordhausen, in the Harz Mountains, where they built the V2 rockets, uh, I was researching a book called Herlenfire, Hellfire in, in English, uh, about the German nuclear weapons programme. That was where the V2 rocket was built, in the mountains. There were two parallel tunnels, uh, each a kilometre long, and I knew that 60,000 inmates from... Buchenwald concentration camp had been marched in there to hack out the tunnels and work on the V2 production lines. And of those 60,000, only 30,000 came out alive. I was in basically a mass grave. I remember saying to these friends of mine, I want to walk out onto the appellplatz, which was outside the tunnel entrance, the parade ground. I said, stay there, I'm going to do this on my own. And I walked out onto the parade ground And I found myself rooted to the spot because I knew that that was the place that in one morning, the Nazis had hanged over 180 prisoners as a warning to the others not to sabotage the V2 production. So if anyone tells you that Albert Speer was a good Nazi, they are deranged. (laughs) That is why walking the ground is so important.
0: Yes it's that's very lots of good examples there, and then um, you also mentioned uh, breaking open history and creating intrigue.
1: Yes, breaking over history if you're if you're going back in time, it's not that you want to make it accessible. I hate that word accessible, but what you are trying to do is create characters that appeal to modern sensibilities. You have to make them come alive and partly this is helped by some of the more vivid historical figures. I mean, when I was writing Perdition, The Last Stand of the Crusaders, there was, a, there was an extraordinary figure called Roger de Flore, who was a chancer and mercenary. And he, when, when the sultan was attacking the walls of Acre, he basically commandeered a Templar galley. He blackmailed the wealthy women of Acre and said, give me half your wealth and I'll give you a place on the galley. And so he spirited them away, got them to safety. He used the money he had made to set up a piracy business. He married the daughter of the king of Bulgaria and then was killed mounting a coup against Constantinople. So first of all, you have these vivid characters and it's the interplay between your fictional characters and the real-life characters that, that make it interesting, certainly as a writer and hopefully um, for the reader as well. And the second thing is, if you're faced with knights of old against Saracen army, the best way to somehow get around that, to somehow create empathy in the mind of reader, really yes. is, is is drop a child in it. And I, you know, I I mentioned just sort of feeling these pillars and and thinking, oh, I've discovered the name Benedict uh, at, at the start of the book. Well, once I had Benedict in mind, I thought, well. You could create a sort of Rudyard Kipling's Kim character who, rather than spying for the Brits, spies for the Templars. Rather than having uh, an Indian horse trader, you could have an Arab camel dealer. And then you think, why, why doesn't he leave when the city is falling? Again, you're looking for motive. You're looking for what's, what's going to drive him. Yes, that m- movie, Enemy
0: at the Gates, I don't know. Do you know that movie? Yes, yes. And yes. there's a child central in that that's the go-between between the two snipers. And eventually the German master sniper traps the Russian by hanging the boy. It's the most gruesome moment in the film.
1: Yes, and, 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 I th- and I think it's children captured in war like like the Hitler Youth Boys who, who fought the Russians in the closing days of Berlin and the Second World War. It, it, it gives it a pathos and gets you into the adult world in a different way. It just adds a, a, a slightly different perspective. So that, that definitely helps.
0: Good. And, and then the third thing, creating, creating this intrigue, this claustrophobic
1: atmosphere... Well, I think you do that in, in two ways. First of all, you choose a period where there's a lot of spy craft, there's a lot of uh, spy trade going on. You have spy masters, you have intelligences, you have pursuivants who raid houses. You have all these things going on and a lot of informants. So you've got that going on. You have the religious overtones of Protestantism against Catholicism. You You have outside danger. And what you're trying to do is create danger and horror outside danger within the ranks of your protagonists and danger sort of moving behind them so they're they're completely encircled so it helps when you have a siege situation as in perdition the Last standard crusaders or cradle uh, the, uh, the the small palisaded the feeling fort. there's there's no way out the, the, the feeling is... that, and the jeopardy is all around and and also if you have interests within the fort that are trying to undermine it. I mean, during the Great Siege of Malta, Blood Rock, it was easy to put in um, French skullduggery, because of course, although there were French knights, France itself was an ally of the Ottomans at that stage. So you immediately had these political machinations. And then what you try and do is perhaps reach into other areas of history. I mean, Blood Rock, I had the Grand Master being poisoned by the Borgia technique of of assassination, which I had read from an FBI file about who had killed Napoleon. And so you have someone being poisoned with arsenic, which has many symptoms that can't be identified. Two of the symptoms of arsenic are constipation and a terrible thirst. So uh, uh, in those days, Uh, apothecaries would have given things like calomel, which was a mercury emetic to to cure the constipation, would have given orgeat, which was a peach juice with peach stone um, in it, which also had prussic acid in it, so cyanide. And so mercury and cyanide together produce mercury cyanide, and that... A lethal combination, but which would have basically exploded the heart. Yeah. So again, you're always trying to bring in, you're always trying to reach to other periods yeah. and, and, and think, how, how will this improve the pace? How will this increase the claustrophobia?
0: There we go. So those are the three essentials. Walk the ground, break open the history, create the intrigue. Jamie, being blind, does, do you feel this is an advantage or a disadvantage to what you do and how you write?
1: It obviously creates practical problems, but I would say on balance, it's probably an advantage because both as a blind person and as an author, you are very much in your head. You're very much trying to invent and imagine what is going out there on out there. and you're you're trying to create a sort of three-dimensional image. And as I mentioned earlier, the way I write, it it's it's living with the characters. it's 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 having, the whole thing spooling through your, your head like a, 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 like a movie, basically. So if you can't describe that, then you sh- you're in the wrong game. You, you have to be able to live that moment, live with those characters and, and believe in what you're writing. If you don't, you're going to write firstly something that's rather poor in quality, that doesn't grab people, but you're not going to be convincing.
0: All right, Jamie. Well, I was I was reading uh, uh, an article in the uh, Sunday newspaper last weekend, and there was a, a sort of list of uh, how how to approach writing a book. Not in the in the sense that you've given us now, which is is kind of uh, rather more incisive, I think, but but um, some sort of simple things. I'm just going to run through them and see if you have any comments to make on them. The first one is. Stay off the booze. That seems fair. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, I, I, well
0: I, I mean, what happened to all
1: those great authors who boozed <laughs> themselves to death? But. They had time on their side. They probably didn't have deadlines. Yes, I, I think the thing is to 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 write. You have to treat it like a job. You have to find focus. And if anything is going to distract you. It's having a bad hangover. You're, you're not going to be able to put in the hours. And it's an energy thing. You have to keep up your energy and you have to really go for it. And yeah. you you cannot do that if you're boozed up.
0: Yeah. And well, the, the second thing is you, but, but
1: chocolates and caffeine are probably okay. I think they're all right as long as you know it's going to spike. And in the afternoon, you're going to get nothing done. <laughs> yes. Uh, what about noise here? Yeah. You know, um, does that. A- That's interesting. I I, I suppose as a a blind person, I am more uh, sensitive to noise. But on the other hand, when I started writing, I could only write with rock music in the background. And I think that's having been institutionalised at school, I was uh, I was used to loud music in the background. And it is certainly one of the books. I think it might be treason. I do have an acknowledgement to Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones. For providing the backbeat that drives everything I write, I I I start the day with a rock track because that gives me the pace, it gives me the beat. It's quite good to have some sort of internal rhythm that keeps you keeps you going.
0: Yeah, I know. I think I suffered from the fact that uh, when I took my exams, I wasn't able to listen to Led Zeppelin's Dazed and Confused <laughs> <laughs> at the same time.
1: So we are where we are. Yeah, at least we have the
0: same. Yeah, prog rock, we love it. <laughs> Clearly, one of the things you sort of see it in television shows and sort of people sitting in front of their typewriter with an empty sheet of paper, <laughs> you know, just beginning.
1: Is that difficult or you just wade on in? It, it never has been for me. I think you've got to understand and appreciate that it's a job that you have to put in the hours and you have to be self disciplined, hence, the staying off the boots. I, I think that when you start a book, it has to build up inside you. You have to be ready for the off. So I know I reach a point where I've done the research, I've walked the ground, I've been in various uh, institutes and academic locations to talk to people. I've talked to chief archaeologists, you name it. I've got everything in my head. I've got the character sorted out.
0: Do you know what's going to happen at the end?
1: I always know what's happened at the end. Funny enough, when I started Treason, I knew, obviously, about the gunpowder plots, and I started, I thought, damn it, I haven't thought what the hero is going to be doing. <laughs> but in a way, that's what I mean about following the characters. You create the character, and then you see what happens to them. You see where they lead you, and how they thread their way, how they negotiate their way through the history. And, and, and so leaving some things unknown... It's not a bad thing. Otherwise, it becomes too much like painting by numbers. Yeah. You you get bored. And let's face it, it's 14 months' work, 14, 15 months work. So you you, Do you you hear that,
0: folks? 14, 15 months work. Just when you sit down to write your novel, it's not going to be <laughs> a couple of afternoons.
1: No, no, it's not going to be a couple of afternoons. You it's it, it is sweat and tears. And uh given what's in the pages, quite a lot of blood as well.
0: Yes. There's an expression tooling around which actually I quite like this expression. Oh, I don't know if it, it it applies particularly to writing, but um, you know, if you switch off the Led Zeppelin and you don't and you put the phone in another room and you you literally sit there in front of your machine with nothing that's able to distract you, does that bring
1: forth the goods? Uh, again, if. It, <laughs> Speaking both as a writer and as a, and as a blindy, <laughs> I don't get too distracted. I, I know what I have to do. One of the tricks of the trade is to leave something hanging over from the day before, so you know you've got to write that scene. You're 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 not faced with a uh, with a blank screen or a blank page, knowing I've got to make this up from the start. Yes. You're you're basically continuing on. And the way I write, I tend to have five scenes per chapter, I know that they're going to be 20 chapters and I know roughly what's going to happen. So it's the interaction between those scenes, between those characters that makes the thing come alive, gives it that tension, gives it that pace.
0: There's another thing I I imagine is probably a given, but um, I'm interested to know what you think. If you're going to write,
1: is it important that you read? It's critical absolutely critical. And and, and I don't mean read other thrillers, other novels. I mean, read history, particularly if you're doing historical thrillers. Absorb what's going on. And those are the two sides of it. Absorb the written history and then walk the ground. One thing I don't believe in, I'm afraid, and anyone out there who's been on these courses or appreciates them or thinks they're good shoot me if you want but I'm totally against creative writing courses I think that it sells a false premise that if you practice enough you're going to be good whereas I'm a great believer that you can either do something or you can't particularly if it's creative you can't Give someone a musical ear, you can't give them an artistic eye, you can't make them a writer. I I can tell in one paragraph whether someone has a facility with words and whether what they've written is going to work. And I have huge respect for anyone who sits down and writes a book, but you absolutely know whether it's going to work or not and whether they can somehow make it flow. And you can really tell that in the first two sentences. So apart from
0: a love of history and an ability with words, what is the one thing a potential writer needs when he starts on this crazy path?
1: Expectation management. <laughs> I I think that you're only as good as your last book. There's no point thinking, oh, this is a smooth trajectory. I think like anything creative. It, it has ups and downs, it has some great moments, it has some bad moments. I think you've just got to love what you do. I'll give you two examples when I'm talking about expectation management. I remember when I was uh, in that most exotic of locations, Heathrow Airport, back in 1997, uh, signing copies of my first thriller. It was a techno thriller, Deadheaders. And I thought, wow, I've made it. I'm in a bookshop in Heathrow Airport. Someone walked all the way across the departure lounge, came into the bookshop, came up to me, picked up one of my books, looked at it, looked at me, put the book down and went, never heard of you. And I looked back at him and said, that's because I don't write children's fiction. Oh, you
0: just had to have the last (laughs) word. Always.
1: And uh, yes, security was called.
0: (laughs) uh, For him, uh, I hope.
1: (laughs) Uh, and a more and a more recent example was uh, a couple of years ago. I was uh, getting off the train. Of course, I walked with a white stick, and the guard had very kindly phoned ahead and, and asked for someone to come and help me. And I heard the chap approaching, and uh, he was on his walkie-talkie, and he said, "I'm picking the VIP up now. Uh, the VIP has just arrived." I thought, "My God, they knew who I am. They've seen the giant posters. Famous They've James read my. I am a D-list." Yeah celebrity and I was on cloud nine I thought this is this is fantastic and it, it took me about three or four minutes to realize that VIP stood for visually impaired person oh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah oh, it, Tom it's expectation management expectation
0: management um uh, writers other writers I mean you know not that we want to plug other writers but um who, who do you really admire in that sort of
1: historical oh thing, for me thriller genre. For me, it's C.J. Sampson. I I love C.J. Sampson. The whole Tudor thing was slightly dying for me. There's been too much of it around. But actually, he is an extraordinary historical writer. Uh, He approaches it almost as a PhD, each one as a doctorate. So they're very well researched. The characters are fantastic. And he writes a damn good thriller as well. So his Shard Lake series, yeah, I'm full of admiration for that.
0: I still love Flashman.
1: Yes, the trouble with Flashman, you sort of know what's going to happen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yes, he's constantly getting himself in trouble. And then,
1: and then surviving. I
0: don't get any man who could be the, the thin red line, the charge of the heavy brigade and the charge of the light brigade <laughs> while trying to avoid all three.
1: <laughs> but, but, but not what I call a rounded character. <laughs> <laughs> really?
0: Oh, yeah. 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 Jamie, that was really, that was brilliant. Fascinating. I'm almost inspired to give it a go myself but I won't have time as we still have so much ground to cover with our Bloody Violent History podcast. The big event, the bloody objects and the violent people. It's going to be great.
1: Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. So it
0: goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck.